The following was recorded at the Necronomicon, live from the Graduate Hotel in Providence, Rhode Island, on August 24th, 2019. HPPodcraft.com. Moon madness, a touch of fever. I wish I could think so. But when I am alone after dark in the waste places where my wanderings take me, and hear across infinite voids the demon echoes of those screams and snarls and that detestable crunching of bones, I shudder again at the memory of that eldritch night. That narrator isn't alone. I can actually feel the shuddering in the room. <laughs> right now. That was the very eldritch opening of C.M. Eddy's The Ghost Eater. The Ghost Eater. (laughs) With revisions by one Mr. Howard Phillips Lovecraft. And we are going to be talking about this story today, live in Providence, the year 2019. Thank you so much, everybody, for showing up. This is a very special episode of the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And we're here at hppodcraft.com, Patreon, mm. and right here in front of you. Yeah, we're sitting in front of you right now, guys. Spooky. Thanks so much for showing up today, folks. We are, of course, here as part of Necronomicon Providence, the International Festival of Weird Fiction, Art, and Academia, recording in the ballroom of the lovely and historic Graduate Hotel, formerly the Providence Biltmore, built in 1922, right around the time the story was written. Yep. This is a hotel filled with ghosts, guys. In fact, the original slogan for the hotel was, forget your worries and ease on up into a ghost. Yeah. That was true. Used to be with. <laughs> that was their advertising pitch for this hotel. So it only seemed appropriate to cover some ghost-related material today. Uh, this is also going to be our bonus episode for the Patreon subscribers. So for those of you that can't make it or couldn't have made it to right here and now as this being recorded, welcome in the future. Or... <laughs> The past? From the past. Keep Welcome. working it out. I'm working it out. It's really too bad you couldn't be here in person, dear patrons who are listening now, because this is a really good-looking audience. Mm, yes. yeah. yeah. Speaking of good looks, we have some guests. Let's start with that amazing reader we heard at the time. Y- yes. Uh, we are very lucky to be joined by the one, the only, Andrew Lehman. Hi. Yeah. Andrew, is there uh, anything going on here this weekend that you're involved in? Uh, Yes. Uh, HP Lovecraft Historical Society, a little group that I'm part of, is uh, here in force with Kevin and Sean. And uh, last night we did The Lurking Fear, our uh, version of uh, The Lurking Fear, Dark Adventure Radio Theater, live in this very room. Tonight tonight we're going to try again with Mad Science, the latest episode. Uh, And uh, once again, as with last night, it's just the three of us on stage. So we're going to draft the audience to help us out with um, some of the uh, sound effects and stuff. And then, yeah, later, late, late tonight, uh, if I have any voice left at all, we're going to do Sea Shanty Sing Along over at the Trinity Brew House. So, yeah, it's going to be a fun day. We are also joined by writer, role-playing game designer, and assassin of hearts, Kenneth Height, ladies and gentlemen. Hey! What have you been working on lately, Ken? What are you, what, what are you up to? Oh, you know, this and that. I am finishing uh, Tour to Lovecraft Volume 2, The Destinations. Yes. And, uh, not quite as we speak, because that would imply I was at home at my desk instead of here in lovely Providence. <laughs> I have just completed, uh, and it has just been published, the annotated 
King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers and me uh, from Arc Dream Press in a beautiful book uh, designed by Simeon Cogswell, illustrated by Samariah, for sale in dwindling numbers in the uh, vendor hall right now. And if you are around at 7.30 tonight in the Apogee Room upstairs, uh, we will have a guerrilla panel, the panel they tried to suppress, Mm -hmm. but like the King in Yellow, it broke out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and it'll be myself, uh, Jim Louder, Shane Ivey of Arc Dream will moderate. We will have a special unmasked guest. Oh, my God. Uh, perhaps. And uh, I would invite everyone to 7.30 in the Apogee Room tonight, uh, right before the HP Podcraft 10th anniversary party. Wow. <laughs> Which I hope you all come to. Yeah. Ten years. It doesn't doesn't make sense. sense. And also joining us for the fourth time here in Providence is Lyle Erickson over there. Yeah. Of the Spider Translator and uh, my sweet, sweet band, Pitch Black Manor. That's right. Aside from being an excellent musician and friend, Lyle will murder one person today. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) I had a volunteer? Wait, why did you raise your hand? What's going on in your life? What's happening? (laughs) Hold on. The last thing we want to say before we get rolling is thank you to the organizers and volunteers here at Necronomicon. We are thrilled to be at this convention, as always. Providence is a beautiful city, and we always love this convention. Yeah, uh, This absolutely. is just a good time yep. to be alive. It's the best. So uh, <laughs> let's give ourselves and the convention a big round of applause. We did it, guys. We did it. <laughs> and now... Let's get into the ghost eater. Yes. Uh, first, we have a bio on the author. Okay. Clifford Martin Eddy, Jr. Uh, he was born right here in Providence in 1896. And as a child, it was said that he was always into cool things like teleportation, vampirism, ghosts, and the unexplained <laughs> phenomena. In that order, I think. In that order. Right. Uh, this is information we've gotten from his wife, Muriel, who wrote, Cliff was always interested in the idea of parallel planes, where life on another level, either astral or otherwise, could be similar to that on Earth, or where life might exist, but in another time or another form. He spent hours in the library researching the unusual, the unique, and the bizarre. His first uh, published story was in Mystery Magazine in 1919. It was a detective tale called Sign of the Dragon. And I don't want to go too off topic too early, but how, what did the library mean to you when you were younger? It, 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 meant, it meant everything. Right? Yeah. It, was, it was everything that, that could be was there. You, you'd go there and you'd find, you know, not just books about stuff you wanted, like your books about ghosts and vampires and teleportation, but things you didn't even know you wanted to know about, like Incas. You know, yeah. you didn't know about Incas, and then you see there's a book and it's got a golden pyramid and some guys in helmets, and you're like, What's who that? are these guys? Yeah. Who are these Incas? Tell me all. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what it did. It, it, because everyone can, f- I mean, not everyone, but most people can find things that they already knew they wanted. Yeah. Yes. But the library gives you stuff you didn't know you wanted, and there's authors, and you, you would go and you say, well, I love Isaac Asimov, but who's next to him on this shelf? Ray Bradbury, tell me more. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how you discover things, is the fact of a lot of books piled up in close proximity, many of which you did not buy yourself, or so I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, did you have early libraries? Oh, well, now that you've reminded me of it. Yeah, the Denver Public Library, when I was a kid, they had the, ki- the children's library, they had a, uh, in the center of the room was a huge fake carousel that had was painted with Beatrix Potter characters all around and instead of little horses they were just little study carols so you could 
get all your books and go hide out in the carousel. And it was, it was a truly magical place. And if you go back to it now, you realize how incredibly tiny it all is. Sure. Uh, it also had the coldest drinking fountain in the world. <laughs> ah, yes. It was so awesome. delicious. On a hot so delicious. Yes. Oh, Spring boy. fed. Yeah, that was yeah, I, great. I actually, many, many uh, happy afternoons spent in that library. I heard my first Clash album at the, the, East, the East Moline Public Library. They had it for London Calling. Yeah, I, wow. I checked it out and brought it home. And, no idea who this band was. I, I, that may be the nerdiest story ever told about the Clash. <laughs> <laughs> Off this tangent. Yes, uh, sorry. Back, All right. Back, no, back, to, Lovecraft. back to the show. Yes. So Lovecraft and Eddie and his wife Muriel <laughs> were friends uh, before they were married. Muriel Eddie, she wrote two memoirs about Lovecraft. One was yes. in ni- 1945 and the other was in 1961. In the latter, there are claims that Eddie and Lovecraft's mothers knew each other through a woman's suffrage group. Uh, Joshi claims to have investigated this, but could find no records of it. I like how Joshi's like, how can we believe the testimony of a woman? Whoa. <laughs> Is there a man with Wait two initials who could confirm this? <laughs> Otherwise, it's definitely bullshit. Wow. Man. I remember when I used to be a guy yes. who was mean to Joshi. <laughs> now everyone's doing it. Wow. Uh, so the, the first mention of Eddie by Lovecraft was in a letter from 1923 where he refers to Eddie as the new Providence amateur. Lovecraft also referred to Eddie as my new adopted son in a letter he wrote to Frank Belknap Long in 1923, which at first I was going to make fun of because uh, that's only six year yeah. uh, age difference. But then I remembered early on in the show, I tried to get you to adopt me. Oh, right, yeah. And we're only a year apart, so yeah. I guess, you know, it's yeah, actually right. not that abnormal to that do makes so. Sense. So it makes sense, yeah. 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 So Lovecraft and Addie visited a lot, you know, in person, and they even had this adventure together where they searched for something called the Dark Swamp. Mm. Uh, Eddie had heard about this from sinister whispers from the rustics. <laughs> And, and the rustics, rustics are about like nine miles out of town. Yeah, it's yeah. not like Dunwich. Yeah, exactly. And also, how did he like get cozy up to the rustics? Hey, do you have a T-shirt that said "rustic" on it? Well, know? here's hey how guys. you get close to the rustics: is you start by just leading in with the teleportation. <laughs> As an expert in teleportation, rustic, um, you know about any swamps? Maybe. Here's a quote from Lovecraft's letter to Long. It was a quest of the grotesque and the terrible, a search for Dark Swamp in northwestern Rhode Island, of which Eddie had heard sinister whispers among the rustics. They whisper that it is very remote and very strange, and that no one has ever been completely through it because of the treacherous and unfathomable potholes and the ancient trees whose thick boles grow so closely together that passage is difficult and darkness omnipresent even at noon and other things of which bobcats whose half-human howls are heard in the night by peasants near the edge are the very least. Now, now, I'm sorry, Andrew. He explicitly said that was whispered. (laughs) If you could go back and read that in a whisper, that would really help. I suppose I should have done. Whose thick boles grow so closely together that passage is difficult and darkness omnipresent even at noon. I'm really into unfathomable potholes. 
Because it feels like once you call it a pothole, you've pretty much fathomed it. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Move to Chicago. <laughs> also, of which bobcats, whose half-human howls are heard in the night, Half human? So does he think that bobcats are actually half bob, half cat? Like this, <laughs> it's some, half bob, it's some half dude. cat. Bob, yeah. Do the reading. <laughs> it's in the name, I yeah. guess. Yes. Yeah. So they went out to Chapachet area. This is where the swamp supposedly was, and they tried to track this place down. One shop clerk said that they heard about this place, but anybody that had ever gone never came back. Another person told them to go to another person to a point where they eventually found out where the dark swamp was. It was in the property of this farmer named Ernest Law, but it was so late in the day that they, after they got that info, they, they didn't have time to go out to the swamp, and they never returned. <laughs> to the Chapache. To Chapache. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They just never returned to that location. So on the trolley ride home, Eddie supposedly told Lovecraft that this trip inspired him and all the creepy descriptions of this place that the locals gave him inspired this idea for a story, which was eventually uh, Black Noon. Uh, not the story that we're covering today. No, no. But the Dark Swamp is a real place. I looked it up on oh. Google Maps. You can go check it out. And in fact, maybe that's something for uh, Necronomicon 2021. Oh, oh my that gosh. People could all take, it's about 90 minutes away, I think. What, just all of us? Yeah. Everybody goes together. In your car? In my car. <laughs> we'll do a live reading from the swamp. Yep. Oh man, that'd be great. It would, wouldn't it? Way more interesting than what we're doing right now. Yes. Yeah. This story, The Ghost Eater, was published in Weird Tales in April uh, 1924. It seems Eddie wrote the first draft and Lovecraft rewrote it. In a letter to Muriel, Lovecraft wrote, Here at last is the amended Ghost Eater, whose appearance I trust Mr. Eddie will find satisfactory. I made two or three minor revisions in my own revised version, so that as it stands, it ought to be fairly acceptable to an editor. Uh, the Ghost Eater was submitted a few years earlier by Eddie on his own, but it was rejected, so Lovecraft worked some kind of magic to get it into magic. the magazine. Why don't we just start it off? Yes. Let's, let's talk about it. So our story begins with our unnamed narrator uh, traveling to Maine. He traveling in Maine. He's in Mayfair and wants to get to Glendale, but he can't find a guide. And at this point, I started to wonder immediately that if you've got the money to hire a guide, couldn't you have just gotten a ride? Like a coach or a taxi of some kind? Because guys, I would think it's pretty expensive. And we're not sure exactly what year the story takes place as well. Right. So it could be, you know, in the 1890s. Or also, he seems 20s. like somebody who's like hired guides plenty of times in his life. Yeah. I love this. Uh, it says, uh, I knew less of woodcraft in those days, though the wilderness called just as strongly to me as it does now. Up to that night, I had always been careful to employ a guide, but circumstances now suddenly forced me to a trial of my own skill. Woodcraft. Is that what you call walking through the woods? <laughs> and and, and it, as, as we go on, we learn it's not even through the woods. It's yeah. along a path near the woods. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're walking around Providence, you're like, my street craft is pretty <laughs> awesome. And it's, and it's also, it's a day's walk. Yeah. yeah. Not, you know, along a path through the... This, this is not, not like, oh, I, I hope the guide can tell us to keep going. <laughs> The people of Mayfair are dodgy about going through the woods, and uh, this is our knowledgeable townsfolk's trope in full effect here. Yes. Stranger that I was, it seemed odd that everyone should have glib excuses. There was too much important business on hand for such a sleepy village, and I knew that the natives were lying. But they all had imperative duties, or said that they had, and would do no more than assure me that the trail through the woods was very plain, running due north, and not in the least difficult for a vigorous young fellow. 
this is the great trope where the townspeople know something you don't know, but I liked thinking about it as they just did not like this narrator. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't want to deal with you, man. So the narrator decides to do it on his own. He sets off to the woods. He figures he could make it to Glendale just after sunset. He has business there the next day at noon, so he's got plenty of wiggle room. Yes, and his business the next day is never specified. The journey is a bit more strenuous than he anticipated, and he gets plum-tuckered. So he sits under a tree, and he has his lunch, uh, which the hotel prepared for him. Mm -hmm. uh, they were some indifferent sandwiches, a piece of stale pie, and a bottle of very light wine. Indifferent sandwiches, <laughs> guys. So he gets uh, full and sleepy, and then pow, out for a nap. And that gets us into chapter two. Now he wakes up, and the day is late, and I thought to myself again, who sleeps like this? <laughs> he, he's out on a walk, like in the woods, he sits under a tree and then sleeps for five hours? <laughs> is he a college student? <laughs> Like, I, and to sleep on the ground in the woods, like, yeah. I can't get to sleep if my pillow Nothing is about slightly that is adjusted. Yeah. Those sandwiches were maybe more than indifferent. <laughs> <laughs> they may have just been different. <laughs> so after his lengthy kip, uh, he sees lightning in the distance and realizes he needs some sleep, or he needs a shelter. He doesn't need any sleep. He realizes I'm he so needs tired. some sleep. I'm so tired. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, my shelter. Oh, God, this lightning makes me so <laughs> sleepy. <laughs> So just ahead, he can make out light from a house, and he comments uh, here how he wished that he had fled instead of going to this yes. house. So he runs to this house, and it begins to rain, and he knocks on the door, and a voice from inside yells, come. So he opens the door to reveal none other than Captain Jean-Luc Picard. I just, no, that's, that's, that's a lie. That's a lie. No. It would be really weird if I knocked on a door, and instead of somebody opening it, they just went, come. I guess. You're into it. I'm totally into it. Yeah. <laughs> I was gonna say, there's, there's, there's houses in the valley you could do that. Yeah, is that right? <laughs> uh, so no one is there, obviously. So he walks yeah. in and there's this strong animal smell, like this person maybe is a hunter or some kind of trapper. And the person who told him to come, he's there when he comes in the door, he's sitting in a lazy boy. That's not what they describe it as, but he's, he's near the door <laughs> when he enters. And uh, here's the description. He was strikingly handsome, with thin, clean-shaven face, glossy flaxen hair neatly brushed, long, regular eyebrows that met in a slanting angle above the nose, shapely ears set low and well back on the head, and large, expressive gray eyes almost luminous in their animation. When he smiled a welcome, he showed a magnificently even set of firm white teeth. And as he waved me to a chair, I was struck by the fineness of his slender hands with their long, tapering fingers, whose ruddy, almond-shaped nails were slightly curved and exquisitely manicured. And then there's some stuff that happens that we're not going to get into. I, I, could, I could not help wondering why a man of such an engaging personality should choose the life of a recluse. So I don't know about you guys, but it's getting a little steamy in here. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's not just the sun that's hot. Yeah. And the narrator, he apologizes for intruding, and he explains his situation. So the guy welcomes him in, and he says that there's food in the kitchen. He apologizes for his game leg and guides him and kind of hobbles with him to the kitchen. The narrator detects a bit of an accent in his voice, although he seems quite fluent in English. Right. And he asks if the man wants to eat with him, and he says... It's too hot to eat. Besides... I had a bite before you came. 
Wow. So they make small talk, but the narrator feels there's something unnatural about the guy. The rain stops, and he notices that there's a full moon outside. What? Dun, dun, dun. And the narrator thinks about leaving, but the host says, stay the night, since Glendale is another three hours away. Again, I was thinking that's... Wait, it's still three hours. That, so he barely walked at all. <laughs> right. he, he gets about 100 yards into the forest. Oh, I'm so tired. Drinks I gotta his eat. wine, eats his sandwiches, collapses, <sighs> staggers a little. Oh, no. Yeah, this guy sucks. Yeah. yeah. This guy's terrible. <laughs> I, think, I think Chad is right. The, the people in Mayfair were just like, really? Yeah, I cannot deal with this lazy right. person. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, re- real quick, though, yeah. before we go on with the story. That was something I wanted to have heard. Uh, werewolf yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. there's Dracula. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know a lot about yes. that, yes. I'm told. Uh, there's Frankenstein. But what is the definitive werewolf novel? What do you think is the, the one thing that kind of sparked it or? Well, the thing about the werewolf is that there isn't a definitive novel. Right. Well, right? yeah. Oh, right. Um, the, 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 the novel that people will tell you is The Werewolf of Paris werewolf by Paris. Guy Endor, yeah. which is about a ghoul. It's not about a werewolf at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and the notion of the werewolf, be, uh, I think because a combination of it comes out of so much more genuine or at least genuinely widespread legendary than vampires do, mm. it's was sort of in the groundwater and so it pops up in folktales and in like some of the Arthur stuff the lay of Bisclavet stuff like that but no great 1890s or 19th century author really takes the dude turns into a wolf and kills people because I feel like it's a wolf man right. that movie yeah. is actually the, uh, yeah it, it Kurt Siodmak basically creates our modern werewolf with yeah. the script mm-hmm. of the wolf man and there were sort of I think attempts at it before in short story form, but there is no great werewolf novel. There's still not a great werewolf novel. There's a yeah. bunch of okay werewolf novels, but yeah. we—I mean—we're still all basically, you know, cashing checks on Curtsy Odd Mexican. <laughs> awesome. I just wanted to talk about that. And of course, Ken knew. <laughs> and Ken knew all about. He had an answer ready <laughs> to go. Uh, so the host gives the narrator his only lamp, and he says, "Oh, I don't mind sitting in the dark." What a creep. Which is creepy. What is he doing? I just go upstairs. I'm going to sit here in the dark. <laughs> So the narrator gets to his room. It smells very strong, animal strong, and he opens a window. He thinks, wait a minute, this guy might be one of those dudes who waits in his house in the middle of the woods for a stranger to come in and rob and murder him. <laughs> Such a... You know, that, that guy. I've, I've, I've read that in stories. <laughs> yeah, wait well, a minute. So I guess that it's, he decides it's best, this is my plan, so I'm gonna make a fake guy, put him in the bed, and then watch from the shadows. <laughs> And, and I'm confident could... in my ability to do that because I had that long nap earlier. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. He slept so profoundly in the woods. Yeah. He could do that all night. It, right? Well, and he almost does here. So that gets us <laughs> into chapter three. Now, we hear someone come up the stairs, and he draws his automatic. Again, he's packing. Yeah. Everybody's yeah. packing in these stories. He hides in the corner. The door opens, and it's a guy he's never seen before, a bearded guy, obviously a foreigner, or possibly from the band Foreigner. The guy doesn't, uh, again, that wasn't in the text. The guy doesn't quite uh, get... It's implied, though. It's very strongly implied. It's 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 in the subtext. (laughs) Yeah. Now, I guess the guy doesn't notice that there's a person sleeping in the bed, or he doesn't care, or maybe he does, because he starts taking off his clothes. Ease on up into that ghost. (laughs) 
And maybe this the guy. The hot werewolf. And then I thought, well, wait, is, since this is a second guy, maybe yeah. the limpy werewolf guy is is turning him out. Like it's like, hey, I've got a guy upstairs you can, you know. Right. Oh yeah. Wow. Or maybe he just wants to know what love is. Because he's a foreigner. Because he's a foreigner. Sorry about that, guys. Well, well, when I thought there would be a payoff, I misunderstood the word payoff. Oh. <laughs> I deserve that. The narrator is annoyed that this guy is getting into bed, and he goes to wake him up, but then when he touches him, the narrator's hand passes through. What? He is an apparition. That's horrifying. What? A snoring ghost. <laughs> the narrator hears what sounds like a dog with a limp coming up the stairs. You know. We all know what that real. sounds like. We all know what that sounds like. You know that sound when a dog has a limp? And it's coming upstairs. And it's coming up some stairs. Oh. You guys all know that sound. So he hides behind the door. <laughs> he hides behind the door again and... Uh... Then into that shaft of eerie moonlight stepped the gaunt form of a great gray wolf. Limped, I should have said, for one hind foot was held in the air as though wounded by some stray shot. The beast turned its head in my direction, and as it did so, the pistol dropped from my twitching fingers and clattered unheeded to the floor. The ascending succession of horrors was fast paralyzing my will and consciousness, for the eyes that now glared toward me from that hellish head were the gray, phosphorescent eyes of my host as they had peered at me through the darkness of the kitchen. So the wolf comes into the room and onto the bed, and it gives a spectral howl. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Can we hear a spectral howl from this audience right now? Some spectral shit. She she went spectral. Down here. Oh man! Uh, Where's the baby? Where's the baby? <laughs> <laughs> we, we can add it in post. But we'll do it later. Not only does this chill us, yes, uh, but it chills the sleeping ghost guy, and he wakes yeah. up. The ghost plunges on him, bites him on the throat, and he his screams become blood-choked gurgles. And I'm thinking that it's probably definitely a hot-blooded. Maybe it's so hot that it's even a temperature of 103. <laughs> hot-blooded, hot-blooded. No? Keep going with it. Okay. <laughs> Nobody was here to help with that. Uh, so uh, the narrator opens up, uh, opens up on this thing. Of course, the bullets pass right through him. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, we have got our ghost werewolf. werewolf. Uh, So this sends the narrator running down the stairs and out of the house and us into chapter four. And guess what? We've had a faint to black moment because the narrator finds himself on the trail to Glendale and doesn't know how he got there. And just at sunrise, he makes it to the edge of the woods. My my theory is he turned left when he left the house. (laughs) (laughs) Went up that big trail that led to Glendale. (laughs) Just there's a sign that says Glendale. (laughs) (laughs) So chapter four, he wanders over to the Lafayette house and the proprietor is like, boy, you're up early. And the narrator says, well, I just came through the woods from Mayfair. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you came through the devil's woods last night? (laughs) That's the way it reads. Oh, Lord, yeah, that's hyphenated between each word. came through the devil's woods last night? Last night. And alone? (laughs) And he's like, yeah, I don't, you know, what's the big deal? He goes, you don't know the legends? 
So the proprietor asks him if he saw anything of, of this Vasily Okranikov or the Count, and he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Who, who are those guys? And he goes, well, back in the day, there were a lot of uh, Russians in the area, and one of them was Vasily Okranikov. He's a very handsome guy, rumored to be a servant of the devil and to be cold as ice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and of course, most likely a werewolf, an eater of men. He built himself a house out in the woods, and he invited uh, the guy, uh, the, this count, to visit. And uh, people warned him, don't go visit this guy out in the woods. He's a dirty white boy. That's a deep cut, guys. That's a deep cut. I'm sorry, wow. guys. That's, that's like first album stuff. That one, yeah. yeah. But he said, you know, I can Thanks, take... <laughs> Lyle's got him ready to he go. He has Dirty White Boy like, ready to go all the time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> For no reason. He does. Yeah, when, you, when you said he was going to murder somebody, I thought that it was <laughs> metaphorical. And what do you mean no reason? There's always a reason there to is. have That's Dirty true. White Boy ready to go. But he said, of course, I can take care of myself. I'm a count. And I'm going to yes. go on the full moon. So since the, <laughs> yeah. since the town folks uh, are worried about this guy going out there, they thought it was pretty... Urgent. That was the last one, I promise. Uh, to get out there and make sure that he was all right. They found the Count's... It's the rule of fives. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the key to comedy. Five yeah. and five, no more. Five, no, five oh. references and no... And please stop. <laughs> you know the old rule of comedy, please stop. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I know it well. <laughs> They found the Count's mangled body with a gray wolf standing over him with bloody jaws. So he asked, well, what did they do to this wolf? Why, son, they killed it. (laughs) (laughs) So great. Filled it, filled it full of lead and buried it in the house and then burned the place down. You know, all this was 60 years ago when I was a little shaver, but I remember it as if it was yesterday. I turned away with a shrug of my shoulders. It was all so quaint and silly and artificial in the full light of day. But sometimes, when I'm alone after dark in waste places, and hear the demon echoes of those screams and snarls and that detestable crunching of bones, I shudder again at the memory of that eldritch night. And that is the end of the story. Yes. It is the end of the story, but I want to unpack this a little bit because it says, sometimes when I am alone after dark in waste places, first of all, what is he talking about? (laughs) And And the detestable crunching of bones, where is this person hearing that? (laughs) He says, he says waste places, it's Oakland. It's Oakland. Uh, okay, that makes sense now. Now, what did you uh, ultimately think of this story? We've often derided the Eddie stories, but deep diving into this one, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what I thought first. Yeah. Uh, that, it's actually, that was a good question where it was actually, actually just you introducing your own opinion. I, so, so, Chris, what do you think? I think... I agree, I, and I agree with myself. <laughs> And another thing, Chris Lackey. <laughs> uh, I think it's actually kind of a fun story. I mean, it's a bit ridiculous, and, uh, and there's some silly wording in there that doesn't, if you think about it, doesn't quite make sense, but it moves pretty quickly, and it's, 
That's always a good thing. Yeah, the, the food wasn't very good, but at least there wasn't a lot of it. <laughs> well, what did you think, Ken? How do you I, like I this? I think story? it's a terrible story. <laughs> I think there is a reason that it's a terrible story that everyone really? says, oh no, those stories are terrible, don't read them. So there's four Siametti Lovecraft stories, yeah. I believe. There's, yeah. there's, there's this one, there's Ashes, there's The Loved Dead, yeah. a heartwarming tale of necrophilia. We definitely were not going to cover that one here. As I much was... as an audience pleaser as necrophilia usually is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think with this crowd... <laughs> you guys would have liked it. It would have killed. That and guy then... back there definitely would have liked <laughs> yeah. it. But yeah, and then um, uh, Deaf, Dumb, and Blind. Deaf, Dumb, and Blind. also yes. terrible. <laughs> I mean... The thing is that if you're going to like a story this bad, there has to be something that it has going for it. Okay. And The Love Dead has, God bless it, the necrophilia going right. for it. Right, sure. Yeah. Which, whatever else you want to say about it, it is not an overused trope. True. Yeah. yeah. But, oh, that house burned down years ago and you must have stayed in a ghost house. In 1922, that was like, people are like, really? That's where this was going? Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. And, Ghost Werewolf? Yes. Well, Ghost of a Werewolf that's the magic. is awesome. No, that's not. That's but then, like a you know, it's... both a ghost and a werewolf. <laughs> I saw a ghost. Well, what did it Wait, do? Wait, did it you went say to that's sleep. a waste of a ghost, ghost and, and a, a werewolf? werewolf. <laughs> yeah. I saw a ghost. What did it do? It went to sleep. And I saw a werewolf. What did it do? It ate the ghost. <laughs> so, so, Senator, you were never in any danger whatsoever. <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> But it happened nearly four miles from town. <laughs> and shortly after a storm. <laughs> There's no threat in it. It's right. literally a quotidian story of a guy who gets lost in the worst haunted woods in Maine. <laughs> They're not the ones off the interstate that are cool. These yeah. are like the dumb haunted woods that someone's cousin opened up because they saw the good haunted woods got all the Stephen King action. Yeah. And they're like, well, I've, I've got me a ghost and a werewolf. I'll put them together in my haunted woods. And well, it's awful. So what I'm hearing, Ken, is that it wasn't enough, that you needed a, a, a werewolf that maybe became a vampire and then became a ghost. Now we're talking. Now okay. we're now talking we're about But uh, that is, uh, that's uh, the, the story, The Ghost Eater. <laughs> And that is a story that was one of the collaborations that we can definitely see Lovecraft's fingerprints all over it. With a I lot mean, of I don't know which... if you can see them all over it. I mean, again, and it, this is not me saying The Loved Dead is a good story. It is not. No. It is awful. But at least you can see where Lovecraft did his sort of uh, pre-1925 thesaurus vomit all over it. Sure. Right, right, right. It's all like full of eldritch and fetor and gooey and all the great sort of, you know, 19-minute um, uh, drum solo Lovecraft <laughs> uh, that we all love. I do. Yes. And this is... 19-minute I mean, drum solo Lovecraft. And That's this, so well This said. stuff is... I mean, it's... it's, it's prosaic it's quotidian there's very little of the, the there's little bits where you can see the lovecraft touched it up uh but at, he doesn't do the thing that he does with his later revision clients and say thanks for the idea and then write a hundred thousand right. words on his own right yeah. right right he, he was you know paying attention to eddie i guess because eddie was at the time a published author so he right. may have weirdly enough had a little imposter center oh i can't Alter this deathless prose. This guy had the dragon story published. Uh, <laughs> these two guys were working on the Houdini thing. Yeah, right? they were. Together. Right. Yeah, yeah, the cancer superstition. Not at this time, but later on. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, Eddie 
basically either was recommended by Lovecraft or independently wound up in Houdini's posse. But what Houdini had when he would come to town, one of his shticks was to go around to area psychics and, and spiritualists and debunk them yeah. and say, oh, look at that. It's cheesecloth. It's not your Aunt Muriel. But in order to do it, he would have to do what the spiritualists do when they would come to town, which is do research about the town. And so they would send an agent ahead to say, oh, it's Aunt Muriel and she died and such and such. And so this, it's like, oh, I'm getting a, is it a, is an Aunt Muriel in the, in the, oh my God. And so C.M. Eddy was one of the guys that Houdini would employ to investigate the spiritualists yeah. so that Houdini could be at the seance or have his agents at the seance once he got globally famous. Mm -hmm. And they would say, oh, my Aunt Muriel's here. And then they would say, but no, no, it's, it's your Uncle Jacob. And also he says, you were arrested for shoplifting in uh -huh. Glendale or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And then the spiritualists would blow up. And so Eddie was sort of a leg man for Houdini on that. Yeah. And because he was a writer and, and Lovecraft was a writer, I think Houdini was like, these guys are going to be great. Eddie will do the legwork and Lovecraft will do the fancy writing. Hmm. And then I'll have me a fancy book about how astrology and witchcraft are the bunkum. And he also had a few uh, women that would do this as well. Yeah, yeah. He, Houdini employed teams of, for lack of a better term, secret agents or private eyes that would go in and do this investigation. So wouldn't a show called Houdini's Angels be amazing? It would be oh, amazing. Yeah. I was and thinking instead of a, a voice on a box, Houdini would like break out of a milk can and say, good morning, angels. <laughs> We just solved it. We just cracked go. that That's pitch right here. Done. Well, I don't have much more, do you? I, I, we don't have any. That concludes. Well, I think we should uh, maybe put questions out. Oh, we're doing a Q&A now? Why not? All right. Well, that's the end of the show. Thanks. Let's do a round of applause at least. To... <laughs> See how I just made them do that? Well, that was it, folks. Unfortunately, that Q&A was exclusively for attendees of the Necronomicon. Do yourself a favor if you have the means in a couple of years and support the convention by attending in person. Thanks again to the organizers and volunteers, as well as Andrew Lehman, Kenneth Height, and Lyle Erickson for being our esteemed guests. Last but not least, thank you to our patrons for making it all possible. The only thing cooler than the ghost of a werewolf is you. HPPodcraft.com. Oh!